Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It's another summer Monday. I am Amanda Carpenter here with my colleague, Will Salatin. Will, how was your weekend? Uh, it's nicer weekend than previous. Like, I don't know, like Washington was relatively cool. So, you know, getting outside, it was nice. Yeah, how it was you? really how gorgeous on Saturday, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, Saturday. And actually, most of Sunday was pretty nice too, so... Yeah, we cool. got a lot of rain. Well, you didn't do anything crazy like start a third party? It seems like that's the <laughs> hot new thing. You know, I still have yet to throw my first party, so I'm looking forward to my third. But the the, the actual third party, that's that's certainly an interesting topic. Yeah, I actually want to get your thoughts on this. Are, are you excited by the idea? I know that uh, some of you got into this on the Thursday night show, but it seems like every bull worker needs to lay their stake in the ground of where they are on this. And so I want to hear where you are. Okay, so I am the screamingly anti-third-party guy. and Screamingly? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, most people don't get excited about third parties, and that's the whole problem. I get very excited, but on on the negative side. You know, in a normal country, you could have a third party. That would be fine. It would offer an alternative. But when one of your two major parties is bonkers, which is where we are right now, Like, here's my argument in a nutshell, okay? Donald Trump is a 40% candidate. If he runs for president, he's got about 40% of the country that'll support him one way or another. I want as much of the remaining 60% of America to stand united against that 40 as possible. So we've all seen elections where somebody has 40, a couple other people got 30, what's left, uh, 30 and 30, and the, the 40 wins. And we just can't have that. We can't have it with this particular 40% party. So yeah, I'm against the third party for that reason. What do you think? I don't think it's helpful right now from a workability perspective, but I will say I I may be more sympathetic than the other people on our crew in the idea that I, I like the idea of a third party effort if it is galvanized over a real set of issues right? And it ultimately brings more people to the polls that may fold into one of the other two parties. But, you know, like, I don't know if I would have been a Ross Perot voter, but I understand that, right? Like, you're concerned about spending, you're concerned about the debt, neither of the parties are addressing that issue. And so you want to force one of the two parties to confront it and reconcile it. So from that kind of tactical perspective, I understand it. But the latest effort, I don't, I don't see that this is being that with the forward party. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking back to, so you mentioned the Perot case, right? So Perot, Bill Clinton, and George H.W. Bush. Clinton won that election with what, I forget what, a very low percentage of the popular vote, right? That was an example of somebody winning in a three-way race with not that much. But the stakes were so much lower. In the, in, I mean, at the time, people thought the stakes were high. But America would have been fine with Bill Clinton as president, would have been fine with George H.W. Bush as president. Perot was a little nuts himself, more nuts than perhaps we knew. But here, we're just not in that world. So I'm, I understand the idea for a third party, and I sympathize with your arguments and their arguments for it. But right now, I think it's just too dangerous. Yeah, I guess I've been listening to, you know, David Jolly and Andrew Yang and the other people who are behind this effort to, because I do believe their hearts are in the right place. Um, And there has been this sort of thing hanging out there where, of course, people are dissatisfied with both parties. So shouldn't we try something new? Um, It seems to me, and I really look forward to hearing them flesh more of this out, they seem to be saying that we just kind of want to be a platform for people who want to get involved in politics that hate the, you know, partisanship, polarization, 
to be a vehicle for them to get involved. I'm not sure how that works. And I saw a tweet from, I guess, Will Conway, who's one of their organizers. And he said, quote, criticizing Forward Party for not having policy solutions is like criticizing Spotify for not releasing their own music. (laughs) Spotify is the tool to distribute the music. We're the tool to facilitate dialogue and consensus. Listening to an Oasis CD on repeat, want more options? Here it is. What do you make of that? Like, I can, I feel like I can see where they're trying to get to, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure being, you know, the platform and not the publisher of ideas where the juice and the action is. Uh, here's what I would say to these folks I understand that you would like to have this, this idea of a platform for, you know, these voices. It's a good idea. This is not the time for it. Sometimes you have a good idea and it's just not the right time. And this is one of those. And and I will speak to the forward party as somebody who ought to be part of their of their constituency of their yeah, audience. I feel like you're the target market here. Well, I, I, I so speaking. <laughs> you know, let me tell you, folks, as a focus group of one here, just for a minute, I have differences with the left, and I have differences with the right. Right now, my differences with the left are about policy, and my differences with the right are about whether we're going to have democracy and the rule of law. That's not a close call for me. I would happily work with all of the people with whom I disagree on the left uh, to, to make sure that the crazy people on the right are out of power until they regain their sanity. And I sympathize with a lot of conservative ideas on policy, but we're just not there right now. And so as somebody who is in the target market of the forward party, this is not the time. Yeah, I would just say me standing, you know, knowing a lot of these players and looking at it from a stone's throw away, what what this could effectively be is a conservative Democrat to moderate Republican faction that focuses on, you know, good governance type principles and ideas, right? Like maybe it's a, a roving debate club that has these policy discussions that Andrew Yang pipes into. But ultimately, when you lay out this binary choice that voters do have between, you know, a radical Republican Party and Democrats who have problems with policy— they need to be a faction that aligns with the Democrats for the time being and act as a buffer to, you know, maybe police the very liberal left. Well, that would be interesting if they wanted to transition to, if they wanted to be a vehicle for bringing into the process people who are in the middle of the spectrum, but they disagree with the left about a lot of things and bring them into the process and make them part of a coalition currently with the left against the right. That would be fine with me. I'm not really sure how that works. There may be some people in the forward party who think that at this moment in time, that's the role they would play. And later on, when it's safer to be sort of a middle party, they would do that. But I think that's a very tricky line to walk. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, now that Joe Biden seems to be maybe, well, he's in COVID quarantine. We hope that he gets well very soon. But Joe Biden's policy agenda is now on the upswing. And just as a side note, I'd be curious what quibbles the forward party has with this particular policy agenda. I can make my critiques from a spending perspective and all that, but that's not really, you know, my debate to have. But I was very interested to see uh, Mike Allen over at Axios. He really made the case for Biden in his weekend newsletter. And I'm just going to read a little bit from what he said about how, you know, I guess we're going into hot Joe summer. Uh, Mike Allen writes, love it or hate it, piece by piece, Biden has pumped billions into infrastructure projects, helped revive the domestic semiconductor industry, and accelerated U.S. viral research and vaccine production capabilities. 
he might be on the cusp of the biggest domestic clean energy plan in U.S. history. Between the lines, interestingly, it all has an America First twist, drilling, drilling more oil here, fixing infrastructure here, moving chip making here, increasing manufacturing jobs here, creating vaccines here. And so and this also comes after his win on the gun control bill and probably the vote on same-sex marriage protection coming up. So he's he seems to be getting a lot done. Are you excited? Is this is this doing it for you? <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm going to get excited about Joe Biden, but you know, I so here's here's what I would say, Amanda. I I I am not affirmatively excited about Joe Biden, but Joe Biden's asset was never that people were excited about him, right? The reason why he got elected was that he didn't have a lot of negatives. People were not unhappy with a lot of stuff about him. Then they got unhappy. But step back for a minute and ask yourself, why did people become unhappy with Joe Biden? And the answer is not generally that Biden was doing unpopular things. There were people who were unhappy with the way we pulled out of Afghanistan and a few other things. But mostly, mostly the gripe about Joe Biden is that he wasn't getting stuff done. You know, that the old build back better thing. I mean, in fact, you can argue and some people have. Was it, are you talking about the gripes from the left? Because from the right, I just see he's, you know, senile, bumbling old man. And it's really not about the policy at all. Right. That's a really good point. That's an excellent point. I see the same thing you do. It's it's the obsession. I mean, I keep saying that they, they bring on, you know, Maria Bartiromo brings on Ben Carson to talk about the, the pyramids guy to talk about Joe Biden being senile. It's crazy, right? Like, uh, and I think, I think you're right that it reflects an absence of real grievance among the broader public with against, against Biden's agenda. Biden's agenda is relatively popular. So he just wasn't getting it done. And that's really important because once he started getting things done, as Mike Allen's list shows, right? That that starts to change the narrative. And if Joe Biden is getting things done and the things he is getting done are relatively popular, he has every ability to come back and his party with him. Yeah, I would say the energy I've detected from the left and, you know, I'm not a member of the left, but it seems like people, you know, they weren't super excited about this chips bill, although that is, I guess, a pretty big win. Shea Katari has a piece in the bulwark today, which I would recommend because he kind of looks through some of the unforeseen global consequences of this and that it may be interpreted as us backing away for our support from from Taiwan, where so many of these chips are made, and emboldening China. I understand Nancy Pelosi is going over there today, which is going to be controversial in itself. I'm not sure we have the labor market at the ready to start producing these chips. It seems like Biden is promising, oh, we're going to pass this chips bill. We're going to get cars. We're going to get cheaper dishwashers, all this out of it. That's going to take a long time to come online. And I guess there's a broader question of how much, you know, factory production of these goods do we want to do at home? And maybe Trump won the argument on that and bringing those kinds of factories back home here, which from a national security perspective is so much better. But I just don't see this as a very straightforward thing. But so that happened. But the thing that really seemed to energize, you know, the kind of grassrootsy types were the progress that suddenly came out of nowhere on this climate bill. I mean, that seemed to be dead in the water. And now we have Joe Manchin, of all people, bringing it back from the dead. Yeah. I, so there's this long running debate, I will, I will tell you among my friends on the left, about is Joe, is Joe Manchin stupid or evil? 
Now, a lot of people love Joe Manchin, including people at the Bulwark or, you know, I mean, Tim Miller made a really, you know, a strong case for Joe Manchin on Thursday night. And I, I, I appreciate that. And there are a lot of things I like about Joe Manchin, but there has been this debate on the left. Is he stupid or evil? And the answer in to those folks is basically stupid. Now, I don't think Joe Manchin is stupid, but he is not the brightest guy. And my, my, why do you case- say that? Cause I don't, I, I disagree with this a lot. I, he's one, my Senator here. He was a very popular right. governor. Why don't you think he's bright? Uh, here's my argument about Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin could have done what he's doing now long ago. Joe Biden started out with the whole build back better thing, which was enormous. Right. And they've been gradually paring it back down. And Build Back Better was always a combination of taxes and, and spending, right? And at at various points, the taxes, the, the revenue has eclipsed the spending, it, which made it anti-inflationary by and large. And Joe Manchin just didn't either, either just wasn't serious about that or didn't compute because his case, his reason for not agreeing to anything, including the various reduced versions of this, was that it was going to, was that inflation was getting out of control and we couldn't spend the money. And economists have tried to make this case to him. And it's somehow, for some reason, at this moment, he suddenly agrees to this, to this argument, which is basically true. It is anti-inflationary to the extent that it you know, reduces the deficit, it increases supply, it reduces demand. And I can't explain to you, Amanda, why he now agrees to it. But the simplest explanation is that he just didn't get it. And now he gets it. But look, as a, as a constituent of his, somebody who likes him more, tell me what you think was going on. Well, I do think, if and I'll recommend a piece that I think published last, maybe Friday in the New York Times, that talked about how he did shape this bill a lot. And I, I don't think it was, he just wasn't plugged in. There were a lot of very specific West Virginia concessions that he shaped in this final bill. I, I think when he goes on these national shows, it gets too in the weeds to talk about, but just a couple of the things that he got out of this for West Virginia, which I know was important to him, was a, a permanent federal trust fund for uh, coal miners with a black lung disease, which has been a big deal for a long time. There are incentives for companies to build wind and solar farms in areas where there were old coal mines and coal plants. So this is a kind of a way he can explain how he's bringing jobs back to coal country with this climate change bill. And there was also tax credits for carbon capture and storage for these other energy producing companies. And another one, which I know a lot of people here talked about in West Virginia, what had to do with the tax credits for the electric vehicles because there were a lot of people in the Biden administration that only wanted those tax credits to be applied to electric vehicle companies that were union. And here in West Virginia, there's a Toyota plant that's non-union. And so like they were saying, okay, we're going to have these tax credits, but it's not going to go for a Toyota car or a Tesla car. And you know, I still think that's complicated and still has to be hammered out because if you look at that tax credit, it's not a rebate, it's a tax credit, it does vary depending on the make and model of the car and how much battery it has. And so I do think, I mean, this is big legislation. There's a lot of complications. And when he's paying attention to how this actually impacts, you know, the Toyota plant in Appalachia, you've you've got to dig in. And I think he definitely did do that. Okay. If that's true, Amanda, if that's what was going on. Are you questioning me well? (laughs) I'm just joking. I like your theory. I like your theory. But once again, we come back to stupidity. In this, if your theory is true, if your theory is true, 
then Joe Manchin is not stupid. Oh, so now he's but evil. Chuck Schumer is stupid, right? Because cool. everything, I mean, you were, you you were describing this. <laughs> you were describing to me the, you know, a, a bunch of elements that, that would make this bill more attractive to a senator from West Virginia who had the 50th vote in the freaking Senate, right? And you used the word complicated. And th- those are all policy complications, right? But politically, that's very simple. It's very simple that when you have this much at stake for your agenda, if this guy has the 50th vote and the list of things you just enumerated is what he needed to get him over the hump, you give it to him and you don't wait till the end of July of like the election year to do that, right? This this could have been done a long time ago if that's really what was going on. So I have to question in that case, the intelligence of Schumer and whoever else was negotiating on behalf of the broader Democratic coalition in the Senate and in Congress, if they held off on those concessions until now. Okay, well, let's listen to Joe Manchin talk about how he got over the hump and how he's trying to sell it because he did all five Sunday shows, which I thought was kind kind of amazing because at this point, he is the front person selling this bill everywhere, including places like Fox News. This is not a green deal. It's not a Republican deal. It's not a Democrat deal. It is a red, white, and blue deal. I couldn't get there with Bill Back better. It was $3.5 trillion of spending. And this is a taken $3.5 trillion of spending down to $400 billion of investment that's definitely going to make a difference in America and everybody's pocketbook. It's not a Democrat bill. It's not a Republican bill. It's definitely not a green bill. This is a red, white, and blue bill. It's great for America. I never could get to Build Back Better, which is a $3.5 trillion spending bill. This is a $400 billion investment bill. It does not raise taxes, and I've said this before. I said all we did was close loopholes, if you heard. First of all, in 2017, the tax rate, corporate tax rate, was 35%. It went from 35 to 21, 14% reduction, Brett. And when that did, everyone says, oh, my goodness, this is tremendous. All we're doing is basically saying the largest corporations in America that have a billion dollars of value or greater have to pay a minimum of 15% to help this great country. So we did not raise taxes. We've closed loopholes. That's all we did. I made sure there was no tax increases in this whatsoever. This is not a Republican or Democrat bill. It's not a green bill. This is a red, white, and blue bill. Brett, we've got one tremendous opportunity here to do something really, really monumental for our country. He's on message. It's not spending. It's an investment. It's not a tax increase. We're closing loopholes. What do you think? Oh, my goodness. I mean, this is a masterclass in spin. Okay. First of all, as to let, let me just touch briefly on your first point. The guy is on all five Sunday shows, right? Out here selling it. And you're right. He's now the front man for this. Now, I just, I just was ragging on Chuck Schumer for being stupid. But getting Joe Manchin to go out this weekend now and be the front man for this bill is important because you're nailing him down, right? He, we, the whole time, it's been like, we thought we had Manchin, then we didn't have Manchin. We thought we did, then we didn't. Now he's all over TV. He's totally nailed down to this bill. He, it's almost impossible for him to back out at this point. So that was important. But the messaging that you just laid out in those clips is just awesome from, I mean, I, I, I'm being cynical here, but like, 
Okay, so it's, it's flagrant. <laughs> it's totally flagrant. Oh my goodness! So it's it's not build back better anymore. He says like I was against build. in his statement. He said I'm against. It's, build. it's definitely not the green bill. It's not the green new right. deal. Whatever you say, it is not the green new deal. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like you feel like you're getting a window into private polling when you hear something like this. Like okay, so it's the Inflation Reduction Act, right? This bill was never about in reducing inflation, but that's how Joe Manchin wants to sell it. So that's what we'll call it. And oh, by the way, it's no longer spending, it's investment, which Amanda, as you know, is like <laughs> a longtime progressive trick to call something investment. Like, so, so we, because people don't like spending, right? So, but it's spending, come on. Um, oh, and the other one there, he's got no, uh, it's, we're not raising taxes. We're just quote, closing loopholes. Right. <laughs> and, and then the stuff about green, you know, that's, I don't know, Amanda, I thought green was popular and I live in a part of the country where if you say, you know, restaurants advertise that they're green, grocery stores talk about being green, but Joe Manchin clearly is like, oh, this is not green. That's the one color it isn't. It's red, white, and blue, but it's not green. Yeah, the Green New Deal is a dead loser. I mean, the way that, you know, once AOC got in front of it and Fox News convinced people that you wouldn't be able to ever eat a hamburger again if it passed, it, it was long done. And so I, I'm not sure Manchin can sell people that it's the red, white, and blue bill and that it's not spending, it's investment. But it is it is smart for the Democrats to make Manchin the front man, not only because it sticks him to the bill, as you pointed out, but you have the senator from West Virginia selling the climate bill. Let me repeat. You're having a senator from West Virginia sell the climate bill. Um, that's that's some shenanigans there. But I guess the holdout now is Kristen Cinema, who has said that she would oppose any any tax hikes. And so I guess it's going to be a matter of convincing her that it is closing a loophole and not raising taxes. But the clock is ticking. Uh, I've got they've only got maybe you know, a few more legislative days before they're going to go on break. And so if she wants to take her sweet time to review this bill, as she is known to do, she doesn't have a lot of time to do it. I, I can't imagine she'll be the one that tanks it. Yeah, uh, the, the cost would be very high. You know, I, I'm really torn, Amanda, because like half of my brain is saying, you know, logically speaking, you know, the, the entire Democratic agenda hangs on this bill. I mean, not all of it, but like, they would be nuts. They would be nuts to blow it. Therefore, they won't blow it. That's what half of my brain, the other half of my brain is saying, you know, we are talking about the Democratic Party <laughs> and they have a long history of blowing stuff like this. So it's possible that they won't get their act together. The reason why I think they will get their act together is that I kind of think that's what really happened here, that it was the looming deadline of getting this done before the recess, before the midterms that finally got Manchin and Schumer to make whatever whatever compromises they had to make to come together. And therefore, that same desperation, that same sense of urgency will get the party as a whole to pull together so they can get the 50 votes. Yeah. Well, the other big piece of legislation hanging out there where I do think Democrats have found their footing, and they should probably think John Stewart, has to do with this burn pit bill. Have you followed what's going on with this? Yeah, uh, it's crazy. Uh, first of all, tell me what you think of it. Listen, I do understand the debate that Pat Toomey is raising about whether this is funded through mandatory or discretionary spending. And we can talk about that. But it's it's really covering up the fact that the VA and larger like Defense Department does not want to get in the business of treating veterans with cancer. And I think this also relates to the 
hiccups over the 9-11 first responders bill, you know, with airflow that John Stewart was also involved in. But the reason why, you know, the Democrats want to make this mandatory spending in this bill, which means that once you're eligible to receive the benefit, you can just have it in perpetuity. Like, it's like Social Security. It's mandatory. Once you're eligible, you get it. But if you have it in discretionary spending, it can be capped. It's a one-time thing. You have to vote for it every year. And so the thing that people on the Hill and when they go on television don't want to talk about is that when these things come up, like it did for the 9-11 first responders, like it does for the veterans in burn pits, they'll say, sure, we're willing to go with this one-time pot of money. But we know if we make treatment for these kinds of illness, this mandatory spending, it'll balloon out of control because the sad fact is, is that even if you are an Iraq war veteran, they don't want to be in the business of treating your cancer when you are, you know, 55 or 60 or 70. They just want to have that one-time allotment so that it doesn't get out of control. Well, that is really interesting, Amanda, because if that is what's under underlying this debate. And I, I I was following the debate about, you know, the Toomey stuff and the accounting and all that. But what you're talking about is something much more fundamental. Mm-hmm. And what it raises is the idea to me that that the Republican Party, which is traditionally against spending or for limiting spending and being sort of fiscally conscious in this case about a benefit that would go in perpetu- into perpetuity, is now cross-applying that principle to an an area where the Republican Party traditionally has not been frugal, and that is defense, and that is veterans, right? And so, you know, this is a party that, you know, whatever they, they have proposed, lots of spending cuts, but never in the military, right? The military is America we stand with, and certainly our brave men and women who have fought for us, we're going to do everything for them. But suddenly, we're talking about healthcare for veterans. And to my surprise, politically, the Republicans are actually trying to apply their fiscal, their frugality to veterans and veterans with cancer. And as the Jon Stewart campaign illustrates, that is politically, I think, very dangerous for them. Maybe they figure they won't lose voters over this because, you know, those voters aren't going to vote Democratic. But I think it looks really bad to be getting cheap with the veterans. Yeah, I like the way that John Stewart put it. And listen, I don't think he's running for president. I don't think anybody should recruit him to run for president. But he was explaining how he's learned the difference about how Republicans want to, you know, quote unquote, support the troops. And what he said in an interview stuck with me where he said, they're willing to fund the war machine, right? Like you want to buy the big planes, you want to have the big defense department budget. But when it comes to actually treating the soldiers for service-connected illness, The VA has a terrible, terrible history of denying veterans care. I was, you know, writing about this when I was working at the Washington Times, and these vets who served in the Vietnam War that never got treatment for Agent Orange, they just had a term for it, and it was deny and deny until you die. I mean, because you would keep putting your claims in, keep putting your claims in, and they would go nowhere. And it is, here's another element of this, it's really hard to prove you have a service-connected disease or disability 
because no one's keeping track of the paperwork of what every soldier did when they were abroad, right? It's easy to know if you got blown up and lost a leg, but when you have these long-standing illnesses that take a long time to present, they don't want to document it. They're like any other bureaucracy. And what's more, Will, they don't want to admit to what they were doing with something like those burn pits. Do you think the Defense Department really wants to document all the hazardous, toxic materials they were burning in these giant 10, 20-acre burn pits? Of course they don't. And so that's, I mean, I, I think that's also a big part of this, but, you know, no one wants to talk about this. We're just going to have this kind of archaic, dry debate about mandatory versus discretionary spending. But that that covers up a lot, in my opinion, of what's really going on. Well, that is really important, what you're talking about, because what you're describing, I think, are these political and moral cross pressures, right? Um, here's a party that claims to be pro-military, claims to be pro-veteran, but is generally hostile to public health care, public health care, and, and hostile to a lot of environmental regulation. And here we have a case where the people who are suffering harm from the toxins and the people who need the health care are those who have fought for the United States. And you, you can't be simultaneously a party that is pro-veteran and a party that is anti-public health care in this context. Because, Amanda, these people, you know, as we're discussing, these people need the health care. They need public health care because what they fought for was the United States of America, right? The government owes them the health care. This can't be something where you say, hey, you know what? You take care of your health care. We don't want that on the public tab. This is on the public tab because their service was for the public. They laid down their lives, they risked their lives for us, and we owe them. So it's a terrible, terrible, I mean, if if, if Republicans don't acknowledge that, uh, I, I think they will suffer for it. Okay. And I, can I could just draw one comparison here? I know I'll get tomatoes thrown at me. It's to abortion. It's to abortion because one of the raps on conservatives is that they don't want to let you get the abortion, but they won't follow through. They won't help you take care of the baby. They won't help you when you're pregnant and they won't help you after the baby is born. And we, we've we seen a lot of evidence that states that are banning abortion are not doing well at taking care of women who are pregnant and taking care of those kids after they're born. And you, you, can't, you can't do that. You have to follow through. And that's also true of the veterans. If you're going to ask these people to go and fight for the United States of America when they get sick because they did that for you, you have to help them. Well, I will say just to wrap up this part of the conversation is that one of the reasons I, as a conservative, have always been skeptical to hostile about government-run healthcare is because I am aware of the problems of government-run healthcare when it comes to our veterans, which, in my opinion, has never fully served them in the way that they were promised. And until we can fix that, I, I don't think we'll be able to fix healthcare for anyone. Okay, so tomorrow, well, August 2nd, we have a number of primaries where we might get clues about how the general election will go. Um, are there any races that you're watching closely? Oh, a bunch. I mean, yeah. the, uh, the uh, you know, the, so in Arizona, we have uh, the the Trump-Pence collision. Do you think that it's really a collision, though? Is, is Pence really mounting the kind, you know, every, it's just funny, everybody's like, look at this proxy war that's happening. Like, what are you talking about? 
Pence is just kind of like mildly saying, I would prefer these candidates, while Trump's MAGA candidates are just you know shoving it down Pence's throat and calling him a traitor at rallies. Right. Look, in, in fairness, any collision with Donald Trump, he's like he's likely the person at fault. True. So he he you can count on Donald Trump to be the jerk, to be the worst person in any confrontation. It is still sort of a contest between the Trump-backed candidate and the Pence-backed candidate. And this is going on not just in Arizona, but in multiple races around the country. It was happening in Pennsylvania and other places. And it's the other, the weird thing about this to me, Amanda, is it's not just a contest between Trump, who the person Trump's supporting and the person Pence is supporting. It's between the person that Pence and sensible Republicans are supporting, the person who is like, in this case, Karen Taylor Robeson, who's much more likely to win the general election in Arizona. And on the other side, not just Trump, but the Democratic Party, which is in a lot of these races, is trying to fund the Trump-backed candidate because that candidate is crazier and likelier to lose. I, what do you think of that? I mean, I think it's a tactic that is, number one, morally indefensible, but also tactically isn't worth it. For all the bad press that you the Democrats got for supporting these mega candidates, did it really make a difference? I mean, listen— uh, Doug Mastriano was going to win that race when they boosted his name ID in Pennsylvania. Most of these MAGA candidates are going to win their races. And so why not just start the oppo early? I, I just I, I don't understand this tactic because it doesn't really make a difference. I don't think Republican MAGA voters are persuaded by ads from the Democratic Party. I, I just think you might as well just light your money on fire. Well, I'm not so sure I agree with that. And the reason is that uh, those ads are pretty well disguised. Yeah, look, he's the most conservative guy in the race. But like, listen, I I keep pointing to Doug Mastriano because I really, well, I really think he does have a genuine grassroots connection. I was driving through Pennsylvania a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, not that the signs mean everything, but you roll through the, this farmland through, you know, Amish country where there's nothing but farms next to a highway. And you just see Mastriano signs. So we're not talking like little, little ones. We're talking like big, almost billboard size, which tells me that he has a organized campaign on the ground there to go and put those out. They look good. They're big. And there's not anything for anybody else. It's not like these people are like closely watching the election. They like him. You know, he's always on with his Facebook lives. He has a very, you know, genuine connection to the grassroots. And you know, he's not even doing regular media interviews because he doesn't have to. Like, they're all on his Facebook page. Yeah, I, I hear you. I, and I think you you have your ear to the ground there much better than I do. So that's persuasive. But honestly, Amanda, I thought about this as I'm watching this debate over the DCCC and, uh, you know, these PACs spending money to help these crazy Republicans. And I'm remembering back to when Trump was running for president. And, I, and when he got the nomination, I was so excited because I thought, oh, Hillary has this in the bag now, right? Oh, really? And, yeah, that's totally what I thought. And and of course, as you're pointing out, like, no, no, actually, you're increasing the worst case scenario here. The worst case is that he becomes president. And it happened. And it can happen in all of these races too. But to be honest, Amanda, I'm very torn. I'm torn between your argument and the idea that we need a sane conservative party. We do need a sane conservative party. We need a Liz Cheney party. And and on the other hand, I go back to my point about the when we were talking about the forward party, the 40%, right? I want to have everybody else united against that. And there is an argument that the best way to do that is to be able to pry some of those folks in the middle away to support the Democrat and the general election. 
And to do that, it helps to have a crazy on the other side. Yeah, well, well, that tells me, I mean, and I've gotten to this debate on Morning Joe the other day, and I think Al Sharpton or somebody was making the same argument, but if you say you would rather go against the worst Republican, what you are really saying is that you don't have enough faith in your ability as a Democrat to sell your ideas on your own, right? If you want to talk about how we need the same Republicans, well, we're going to see what happens to three Republicans who voted for impeachment tomorrow. You have primary in Washington with Jamie Herrera-Butler. You have Dan Newhouse. And then you have Peter Meyer in Michigan. And Peter Meyer, a good, upstanding war veteran, voted for impeachment, is just the kind of guy you would want. He's one of those candidates where the Democrats came in and are boosting his wild MAGA primary opponent. And if he goes down and that Democrat doesn't win, what are they going to have to say? Okay. Sometimes I do this, Amanda. I'm persuaded. <laughs> I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded that the Democrats shouldn't be doing this. And the, what I'm thinking as you're talking is, it, the question that Democrats have to have to ask themselves is, is the rest of your agenda, let's say all the stuff in the Build Back Better bill, is getting all of that passed more important to you? Is it, is it worth risking democracy and the rule of law? And for some people, honestly, the answer is yes. For me, the answer is no. No, it's not worth that risk. And therefore, when you have candidates like Mastriano, like Carrie Lake, you have to kill that candidate off, not literally kill them off. You have to right. prevent them from getting power, right? And I think that people like me and the Democrats, the Democratic campaign committees, should think of this as you get two shots. We have two shots to kill them off, to, get to, to prevent them from getting power. The first one is in the primary. So at least, at a minimum, stay out of the primary. Let the sane Republicans try to win that primary and get rid of the threat. And if they fail, then in the general election, you get your shot, right? But mm -hmm. take both shots. That would be that would be a very persuasive argument to me. So I'm just going to fold over on this one and say, you're right. Okay. Well, I will, I will give a little bit of an asterisk. Like maybe the Democrats can get away with this in a place like Maryland, which is traditionally blue, which I, I think I personally think it's terrible. Larry Hogan was a very effective governor. He had a great candidate uh, in waiting in the mold of his kind of governing style. And, you know, she got beat. So we have this Dan Cox, who's a wild MAGA conspiratorial candidate, and the Democrats boosted him. And maybe they can get away with that in Maryland. I, I'm not endorsing the tactic, but okay, you're, you're already favored to win. You're on favorable ground. But to try that stuff in a swing state, Places like Michigan, Arizona, I, I think they're absolutely playing with fire, and it's way too close, and they shouldn't spend a dollar on this uh, when they could be supporting and promoting their candidate. But aside from that, I am also watching the referendum in Kansas about abortion. I think this is going to be the first actual vote post-Dobbs, and I'm very curious to see what kind of turnout they get on this ballot referendum. So essentially what happened, you know, the Dobbs decision uh, gave all the power to make laws and abortion over to the states. Kansas has a referendum essentially saying, okay, will you vote for us to go ahead and make our own laws? And so the pro-choice advocates want people to vote no. The pro-life advocates want people to vote yes. But this is such a weird time of year, you know, August 2nd. I I'm not sure what the turnout is going to be. 
that's pretty wild. Um, let me say one thing about Maryland because you're mm-hmm. the- Oh, sorry, the, sure. No, no, because because you're exactly right in your political analysis of Maryland, but I happen to be a Maryland swing voter. So I oh. will tell you that, and and I am, I literally, I voted for Larry Hogan. in the. I voted, I voted for the Democrat in, the, in Hogan's first race, in Hogan's re-election campaign. I didn't like the the the, the left won the primary in, in on the Democratic side, and I was delighted, Amanda, to have a Republican I could vote for. Um, I, I, and he was a, a moderate. I mean, I, I'm a Larry Hogan kind of person in a lot of ways. So what they what the Democrats did by 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 knocking off the the, the Hogan designated alternative, the Republican in the primary, was they deprived me of a choice in the general mm-hmm. election, and I don't like that. I just don't like it, but. Uh, but we're going to be safe with the Democrat, and that's fine. So to your question about Kansas, you're exactly right. It's so weird that a referendum is happening in on primary day. And in a state where, you know, that is heavily Republican, the Republican primaries are interesting. Democratic primaries in Kansas are generally not interesting. And so you're going to have this skewed turnout of you're just more likely to have Republicans turn out. And that's going to affect the vote. And it could end up affecting abortion policy in Kansas. So that is really weird. Yeah. Do you think if the pro-choicers don't win on the no vote, it'll be a setback nationally or would it be galvanizing? Well, I I, I don't know what exactly I would take from it because of the weirdness of the turnout. Mm-hmm. Um, it is notable already that Kansas is a, I mean, it's a relatively pro-life state in terms of, you know, it's a relatively conservative state, but it's in the middle of a bunch of other states that are all banning abortion. I mean, Missouri, Oklahoma, they've already made their moves. Nebraska will probably follow. And Kansas could end up being kind of an island. And one of the questions I have, Amanda, and I, I wonder what you think about this, is that as the map starts to change on abortion policy, do the states that haven't moved yet feel a sense of urgency? That is, if you're a sort of moderately pro-choice voter in Can- in Kansas, do you start to look at the states around you banning abortion and say, I, I can't stay home. I need to come out and keep my state, pro allow abortion to be legal so that because women are counting on me. I mean, I saw a stat that half the women who get abortions in Kansas are from Missouri, just about. You know, that's amazing. And and I wonder whether that will drive turnout. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it's just, it's hard for me to judge it because it's a different kind of grassroots that I'm not familiar with because I've never been involved in pro-choice politics. Is that, but I, I'm always told, 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 by Democratic activists, that nothing will light a fire under women like this issue. And I'm just, I, I've i have never been convinced about that um, because I've never seen it become the number one salient voting issue, which is why I am so curious to see what happens in Kansas, given that the, the timing of it is a little weird, but it is going to be the first actual post-Dobbs vote. And so I'm going to be watching it very closely because I do think there will be a lot of uh, takeaways about how galvanizing this is in terms of boosting Democratic turnout, even in a very red state with all the asterisks involved. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I would just add to that. Um, this is, uh, although the language of this referendum is extremely confusing. It is. I mean, Amanda, I looked at the ballot. I looked at the ballot language. I would not know how to vote on this. It's like a badly written poll question. It like It sounds like you're being asked to affirm what the state law is rather than what it should be. And it doesn't even tell you whether it talks about, you know, we should be able to pass laws with regard to. And you're standing there like, wait, are you pro-abortion, anti-abortion? What the heck is this thing? Which generally helps the no vote. 
So, you know, for all we know, the, the, there may be more of a vote against this just because people can't understand what's being said. Yeah. All right. We've got to ask you about something else, which is and that's why I didn't really pay attention to as it was unfolding last week. But now after I saw the images and the pictures come in over the weekend, I, I'm even more unsettled by it. And that is the live golf tour that was happening at the Trump New Jersey golf course over the weekend. Of course, this is the sort of breakaway league that is backed by the Saudi royal family uh, to, I guess they're trying they're trying to compete with the PGA and attract younger people to the sport. I think their slogan is golf but louder, and there's like more <laughs> drinking and jeering of people, a little bit more of a party-like atmosphere. They're paying off a bunch of golfers to come do it. And it, it looked kind of like a circus there last week. Did you see the photos? I didn't see the photos, but I read about this, that they're, they're trying to make, you know, golf hip somehow by making a lot of noise. Well, of course, it's it's weird because it's Trump, right? All the backstory with the Saudi royal family, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, Jared Kushner's, you know, crony investment deal that he cashed out on as soon as he left the Trump White House. And so now Trump is hosting, you know, all the Saudis there for their golf tournament, which I think is rightly criticized as sports washing, where they try to, you know, launder their terrible reputation on human human rights and um, association with 9-11, which they've never really fully came clean with. But, like, it's the former president hosting this tournament for them. And aside from, you know, the the global political question of it, you have Trump splashing the presidential seal, like, all, all over the place, on towels, on, like, you know, these stone etchings when you walk up to the course. His son, Eric, had this golf bag that says Trump 2024. Um, Caitlyn Jenner is there. Uh Charles Barkley, who else? Of oh, Tucker Carlson is right there. Marjorie Taylor Greene, and like they're all in this box, right? And of course, you know, almost every photo, Marjorie Taylor Greene is right up front, you know, right up front, positioned by Trump, waving to the crowd. There's protesters from you know families of 9/11 victims who are upset about this. There are pro-Trump people, you know, cheering. Let's go, Brandon, um, to golfers on the course. I it's just it's a wild mess for all kinds of reasons. But I mean, I guess I should have expected something like this. Maybe, I don't know. What do you think? Well, look, I I really feel for Trump here, Amanda. I mean, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, this is a really tough call for him because on the one hand, we know that he is a longstanding anti-Muslim bigot. We're talking about a man who literally proposed to ban anyone of the Muslim faith from coming to the United States. So he's got that on the one side. On the other hand, he has no morals. And so what he did as president was to try to sell out United States foreign policy. And Saudi Arabia, although it is a Muslim country, had and has tons and tons of money throughout Donald Trump's presidency. I mean, he literally began by going to Saudi Arabia, by attending this grotesque ceremony where a bunch of American defense contractors parade across a carpet and are given these portfolios, these these contracts by the Saudi royal family. And Trump, the entire presidency was selling out. Then, of course, there's the, the murder of, of um, Jamal Khashoggi, and Trump won't even accept the CIA report that says, yeah, MBS did it. So he's been shilling for the Saudis his whole 
time in office. And it's not at all surprising that he would do so now and that Kushner would get his $2 billion deal. Um, and the, so this golf tour is just an extension to me of Donald Trump having no principles in foreign policy, no principles around the world at all, other than money. It's always about money. And, uh, you know, I think it's perfectly appropriate that he has the presidential seal on towels and golf carts at this tournament because he's just selling out again. Yeah, I guess that's what was part of so gaudy about it. It's the, the sheen of the, you know, presidential palace. And you almost have his family, of course, all his family members were there. And they're sort of like parading themselves out there as like the royal family with the Saudi royals in front of these, you know, very good-looking athletes. It's just, I, I guess gaudy is just the only word I can come up with for it. And it's just, it, it's, it's gross to see everyone mill around and act like this is completely fine. And in the write-ups, you even see the sports industry say, well, it's just about golf. We're just out here to have a good time. Well, really? Really? Because it doesn't, it's just, it's just gaudy yeah. and gross. And 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 I, we we should add that part of this tournament, part of this setup that the Saudis have set up, is it's also corrupt in the sense not corrupt, but it's it's cronyism in the sense that normally in sports you have to win to get something. <laughs> you don't have to win. You don't have to do anything to win. Yes. First of all, the top guys are literally guaranteed one hundred million, two hundred million dollars, right, to be part of this tour to lend their names to it. And the other guys who get in, everyone's guaranteed $120,000. You don't have to do anything. The Republicans are against welfare. But if you're a golfer and you agree to be part of this thing, you're getting paid no matter what. And so, of course, these guys are very chill because they're already winners. All you have to do is have an in with the people who are organizing this Trump and Saudi-backed operation. Thank you for bringing that up because that's another element of this that just made it seem so like fraudulent. They're not really playing. Like they're all putting themselves out there as if this is some, you know, as if they are worthy of the ceremony of this. I mean, this is not the PGA. They are not the royal family. You are not the president. And yet everyone is just carrying on as if that's all true. Yeah. Can I throw in one sports story that I wanted to bring up? Um, back to real sports. Bill Russell died this weekend. And for people who don't know, Bill Russell was just one of the greatest players in NBA history. Um, he basically invented shot blocking. He rebounded more than 20 rebounds a game, and he won eight straight championships, which nobody will ever do again. Um, just an amazing player. He was the first black head coach in the NBA. He was active in the civil rights movement. And I just hope that since we were talking about fake sports, let's get back to real sports. And that is what Bill Russell stood for. Well, I endorse that. That is a lovely note to end on. Will, thank you as always for joining me. And listeners, Charlie Sykes will be back tomorrow. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. Do this all over again. <laughs>